Nature Revisited. We air this episode on December 21st in celebration of the winter solstice. I first met Alaskaya at the Vermont Institute of Natural Science. I was having some trouble with an eagle. We quickly shared with each other the paths we have taken, and through his readings, his music, his poetry, and his photography, I have gotten to know someone whose story is a very human one. I have gotten to know someone who embodies the curiosity of the scientist, the creativity of the artist, and the spirit of the mystic. There was a fire on our Missouri farm. In the following years, we found delicious morels growing in a magical place beneath a giant sycamore tree, nestled into a surreal carpet of Virginia bluebells. On the way in was a moat of stinging nettles, shoulder high, that would prick you through your shirt and leave you itchy and aching for hours. But once arrived, this was like no other place, a true haven where abundance flowed like the honey of the hive and the old bent hickory on the banks of Honey Creek. Fleshy, cream-colored, and fenestrated, morels are hollow with a bulbous fruit that seems to appear overnight, rising from the ground into sunlight after a rain. I was born in a military family. Uh, my father was in the Navy. We moved frequently. I was born in LA. I've lived in three places in California, Upland, Ontario, Pomona, San Diego, and then back and forth on the coasts, so Virginia, Maryland, Missouri, Kansas, Tennessee, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and now in Vermont. I lived in Cuba and Guantanamo right after the revolution, and traveled in places, uh, Scotland and Guatemala, Peru, the Amazon, as a research scientist then. I grew up in a very pragmatic environment. And even though I was born an artist, I studied science because I had an aptitude for that. And that was my first career path, was to work in conservation. But it was very soon after I worked for the conservation department that I realized that the artistic side of me was longing for the company of other artists. And so I went into that, that direction and never looked back. Ended up with a plum job in a wonderful town. One of those jobs you can't imagine would ever happen to you. I had everything. And I was supporting 50 people as a designer. And my work was sold coast to coast. And... It was a great experience. I learned a lot. Uh, but in the course of doing that, I also had was having experiences that were of a, 
a larger focus. And I was sort of being called back to something that had started many years ago. Uh, as I grew up, I had a sense of things where I didn't necessarily belong in the family where I was born. And my family recognized that, but there was no way for us to, to really embrace that. So my whole life, instead of having uh, rock and roll stars and 57 Chevy posters on my walls, I had, uh, I had posters of Native American holy men, Red Cloud and uh, Sitting Bull and, and Geronimo. And uh, some of my favorite moments were being photographed with Indians as we were driving across country in Arizona, New Mexico. As just a little boy, and it was like all of these things were calling to me. As we would, we would pass the Washita battlefield in Oklahoma, and I would think I really need to go there, but I don't know why. And it was wasn't until I was forty five years old that I finally stopped and went, and I had what they call a soul retrieval, where I had an experience there, where I had gone to have a solemn experience, one where I was uh, to honor what had happened there, the tragedy. And instead, I had this joyful experience, like, uh, like the universe had struck me on the head and said, do over. <laughs> and that was the beginning of really recognizing this connection is real. It wasn't just uh, some fantasy as a child. I had an experience in a river in Texas, which can only be described as an intervention. The, the river itself was so placid and so beautiful it was like nothing could possibly go wrong here. And I ended up dragging myself out of the river naked because the, the water had pulled all of my clothes off. <laughs> and I felt as though that was the beginning because I realized I had regrets and that there were many things that I hadn't done yet. And I just began to do everything that I had ever wanted to do without waiting and part of that path was to take me into contact with other cultures, Mayan culture in Guatemala, Peruvian culture in, in the Amazon, uh, and on to Scotland and uh, the Standing Stones and things like that. So I began on a path of, of um, embracing things which were not important enough to think about before, and suddenly they were very important to me. In the course of doing that, I would take time out every day and go walking. And in the course of those walks, I was walking on mountains and in river valleys. And the landscape was very highly charged with old energies, energies that are remnants from the Civil War, for the Cherokee Trail of Tears, slavery. And despite all of the modern trappings, those energies still remain there. And I was engaging with that. And I had no words for it. I had no one to talk to about it. But it became a daily practice for me. It was the beginning of a 10-year walking meditation, five of which happened there, and five more happened here in Vermont. And I began to actively work on healing those spaces, taking those energies on and transforming them. It was a kind of initiation and a trial by fire because I had no, no, no mentor. In the Standing Stones in Scotland, there's a sense of connection. There's a sense of history, a sense of uh, being connected to the whole picture of things. Uh, in the Amazon, to be in amongst those trees that are mature and undisturbed. I was in an area that was a preserve 
that had seven stations of remoteness. And as you went farther and farther into those places, the energy, the primordial energy, was so powerful and so life-affirming. You couldn't imagine not being there. It's, it's so, so essential to our core as human beings. And people feel it. People from every walk of life feel it in those environments. Uh, in uh, Guatemala, we were crossing uh, pristine lakes surrounded by volcanoes and all of these massive energies. The volcano is a, a masculine energy and the, the lake is a feminine energy and here they are in perfect harmony. Those are irreplaceable feelings and feelings of connection and a sense of belonging. In the course of my time here, I have been shown the locations that I would call sacred sites. I believe that they are uh, have been in use in the past. I think the changes that came to this continent uh, 500 years ago resulted in the displacement of the people who knew of these places, were peopling these places, and were honoring them. The mystic is as much a part of these places as any other aspect of it is. Uh, when we talk about sacred space and what is a sacred landscape, what is a sacred space, these spaces in particular are located in very highly charged locations of uh, intersection of energetic lines in the landscape. They are also aligned naturally to these auspicious dates that we're talking about, particularly the solar summer solstice. When I walked into one of these spaces following a trail that I was, I was focused on, I looked up and I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I could feel it in my bones of what it was. But I had to literally wait seven seasons in order to affirm that it was an alignment to the summer solstice sunrise because of the weather and all these other issues. And when that happened, I, w I already knew. I already knew that this was a particularly remarkable space. I began to feel the need to create a relationship with this environment and to honor those who had come before and to honor the space again. And so I started making offerings, offerings that are of a, a simple nature, uh, sacred herbs, tobacco, cedar, sweetgrass, sage, and fruits of the earth, uh, literally fruits and nuts and seeds and so forth. And because I was uh, documenting my path into an awakening, I had a camera with me. And I, being an artist, I was enthralled with the images I was seeing in these spaces, particularly during an alignment. And I was photographing them. Well, over time, I amassed quite a lot of them. And one day, as I was reviewing them for the hundredth time, enjoying the images, I saw something in the smoke that was a secondary image. And it was so clear that it made me wonder, is there something else? And I began to look and see more and more and more over the course of several years worth of images. And I came to understand that this was not unique 
that this was not extraordinary, but this is part of the language and part of our contact that we as human beings have as our birthright, that the landscape itself is home to spirits of place. We can assign a lot of names to them, but the fact of the matter is they're part of our lives, even if we're not aware of them. And so I was responding to that and began to actively respond to that, having seen this now. It was as if I was being shown when I was ready to see them. And as a scientist, you can imagine the doubts that went through my mind and all the ways I've tried to explain it. I've been doing this long enough now to understand that the, this is not coincidence. It is convergence. And there's a big difference. When we are on our path, when we're living and walking our walk, convergence becomes a part of our everyday lives. And when it happens in the landscape, you're being shown, you're being given access, you're being given a gift. And people have lived this way forever. It's what we have forgotten. And it's finding that language that brings us back in touch with that, that we have to remember again. Talk about how important the winter solstice is and what it represents. Uh, we have four auspicious dates over the course of a year. And the solstices, winter and summer, represent the peak of the sun in the sky in the summer and its lowest point, least amount of daylight, in the winter. The other two are equinox in the spring and in the autumn. In terms of a spiritual symbolism, the winter solstice is the beginning of the year of the soul. Uh, it is a time of going into ourselves because of the winter itself and preparing what will be birthed in our life in the spring of the equinox. And from there, of course, it moves to the summer solstice, which is the height of our maturity, if you would, uh, for this year of our soul. And then in the autumn equinox, we're beginning to be in touch with our spiritual aspect and less so with our corporal one. Part of the mystic experience is to be able to change your vibration and your sensitivity so that you resonate with things which would normally be outside of your daily experience. You begin to resonate with the energy of boulders or resonate with a river or resonate with a valley, with a sky, all of these things. And as you open yourself to those possibilities, you're opening yourself to an, another world of connection, which people have known of for eons. It's us who've forgotten. Right. We're the ones who need to come back and remember. For me, where it really comes alive is in your writing. Is that right? When I read and I hear it, the words, that's where that connection to nature comes really alive. And those other things that may come into the cultural or societal judgments fade away. When I hear you speak, either there or read you, I don't, cons I don't say, I'm listening to a mystic. I hear, I'm listening to somebody who is in touch with his surroundings in nature.
burnt offering, a thousand crows gather like smoke. The doors of consciousness open as if one door and then another and another, and each of them is a question and not an answer. And it's the questions that drive us forward. We're headed toward a wonderful question of who we are, how did we get here, and what happens next. You know, all of these systems, these mystery systems, have a kernel of truth attached to them. That's why they survive for thousands of years within our cultural paradigm. Whether they're the whole truth is a whole other issue. But when you're on a path of discovering who you are and working at that, I have 150 files of different aspects of pursuing who I am, why I am, why I'm here, why I do this work. I have a journal each year that's four inches thick of the daily events of my life and the coincidences, the convergences, synchronicities, and the thread of wonder and awe which connects all of them. And this is, my name is Alaskaya, and I used a, a Kabbalist numerological graph of what Alaskaya means in terms of manifesting as a life path. And it described where I am today in the course of my work to a letter. There is a very large story happening, and I'm coming to understand that my story is so old uh, that it is not the message. I'm the messenger, and I am part of a larger unfolding of this old way and the new way. I live, we live in this culture which embraces technology and science and so forth. And this is a new way of living in the world. And so within all of that context, this is one of the old ways that people have to remember as part of our way of healing, not only ourselves, but healing the planet for the next phase that comes. And we are now beginning the long ascension into knowledge again, the kind of knowledge that brought us some of the mysteries which still live in the world. This is one of the old ways that we can remain in touch with this legacy, with this entire conscious environment that we can interact with, which we have somehow turned ourselves away from. But if we really want to have the experience, we simply change our consciousness, open ourselves to that. And it's available to everyone. And I assure you that there's no way at this point that you can anticipate the wonders that await on the other side of those doors. This prayerful intention has been a part of our our interaction and relationship with the environment, even though you and I might live as though that other realm, that mystic realm, doesn't exist. It's our lack of acknowledging it that is the aberration. And it's the aberration within this time that we live in, and it's the thing that we can, and I think could, remember, should people make the effort. I think that our ability 
to, through intentional prayer, change the reality of our world is very real. And to be able to acknowledge that there are entities who assist in that is a very powerful message. Carrying roses, I walk up the mountain, crossing the brook on ice above a foot of snow. Once a source for stones and gravel, there's a space of lingering memories and forgotten stories here. A tall stone marks the perimeter between worlds, between the earth and sky, naked to the summer sun, bare to the winter moon. I've planted roses at its feet, and blackberries have grown up around. I place sage and tobacco in a bundle on top, circling the herbs with a ring of seeds and corn. No breeze beneath gray clouds. The incense lights readily. Its sweet aroma pierces the air and lingers on my tongue. I add a wild rose, as deep as the reddest garnets to the circle to tell of timelessness, of the silence and secrets of the ages. Today, the rose will be my guide. Talk more, if you would, about stone. Part of what I was describing to you is a prophecy from the Hopi. And it talks about some of the messages and the memories are in the stones around us. Stones are like a living library of information, and it is possible there are people who can access that. It is possible to have a conversation with a stone. I've watched people do it on many occasions. When a stone's in its natural environment and it's in touch with everything around it, uh, it's a different experience than when you take that stone and stand it on its end, and now it's in contact with the earth, and it's also in contact symbolically with the sky. So relationships with things like that are possible. There are guardian stones, which exist in the presence of sacred spaces, usually other stones, a masculine energy and a feminine energy. Between the two of them, is the sacred space, which is the beautiful marriage of the two. So you think that you're not interacting with an entity, but there are other fluid, mobile aspects in your environment which can manifest immediately and say, I see you. Thank you. Thank you for this, uh, for being part of this reality. And you know, stones have a very long memory and you're sort of a highlight of their day when you, when you make an appearance. been a musician my whole life. I was a born drummer. I had the unusual 
awfully good fortune to be adopted by a Hall of Fame musician in Tennessee who was also Cherokee. The Trail of Tears passed through his family's property. And as a gift, he gave my family a Cherokee Matate. I did do an offering in a sacred space for the Trail of Tears. And I took that matate and placed it amongst uh, the other offerings of flowers and fruits and seeds and so forth. The intention being to transform our cultural history of the Trail of Tears, which is as a sad and tragic event, into one of joy there is a healing technique where you create a threshold, a break in the timeline, and you say from here on forward, let it be this. And that was the meaning of that, of that offering on that day. Uh, so there is an outgrowth of this, which is part of my work, which is photographs, which normally in the history of this kind of interaction, cameras didn't exist. And when they did, photography was not allowed. There are some very good reasons for that. I did not think of any of this at the time I embarked on it, and I had a camera with me. Because I come to this work naturally, I'm not beholden to any mystery school or any series of mentors or teachers. And I believe that this is the work that I've come to do. And so the camera was beginning to show me that when you take this three-dimensional world and you flatten it into a plane of a photograph, all these different aspects in the environment become part of the message. The stone, which was static, is now part of this image, part of this face, part of this entity. It's not to be misunderstood that the photographs are the work. The photographs are the messenger, and the photographs are an artifact of the work. When we come into these spaces... We are praying, we are trying to affect change in the world, that these spaces represent relationship, they represent a true heart, they represent intention and manifestation. Everywhere can be considered sacred. I think it's really a matter of degree, as we can describe it. Uh, throughout history and throughout the, the map of the globe, there are spaces that are identified as sacred spaces. The reason it's considered sacred, it is also a point of contact between our lives and the lives of the spirits of place. Thank you for listening to Nature Revisited. All readings and music were written and performed by Alice Gaia. You can learn more about his work, his readings, poetry, music, and photography by visiting both snowonwater.com and brushanddrum.com. The flute on the opening music was performed by Maxwell Campbell Barrett. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And I hope you will join us for part two, readings and music from Snow on Water. And in the meantime, 
remember, we are nature.